All right, Herbie Bame, how you doing, man? I'm great. Yeah, how are you? I'm really good. I'm on the road today. I'm out in uh, California. Where are you coming from? Nice. I'm um, here in Tempe, Arizona. We're actually, well, in theory, leaving for swimming Cal in Stanford in two days from now. So hopefully we'll be a little bit closer to you. There. Wow, Cal, Cal and Stanford. So it's a, it's a tri-meet? Uh, well, we swim, uh, I guess, Stanford first and then Cal the following day. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's a big schedule. I mean, back-to-back -back yeah. like that. How do you prepare uh, the team to kind of give a full effort for both teams? Because, you know, it's obviously yeah. you want to focus on one and not the, the two at the same time, you know? Yeah. I mean, it honestly comes down to the whole year and just kind of how we approach everything each and every day because, um, I mean, you're going to be tired. And at PACs and NCAAs, it's a pretty heavy schedule as well. So this is a pretty good time in terms of the calendar for we're like six weeks out of PACs, about nine from NCAA. So it's good to have some, some hard racing back-to-back -back while being under some pretty heavy training as well. So it's just just kind of that of accepting that's that's what we have to do. And I mean, we're not um, at a spot where we can really rest against either team and have an even decent chance of coming close to winning. <laughs> so it's mm. kind of everybody's got to give everything on most people, eight swims over the course of two days. Right. Um, th this podcast will come out after the result, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so uh, hopefully, result. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you've won by the time people yeah. listen to this. Uh, but but what, what is the mentality when it comes to dual meets uh, within season? I know are you you know you want to win everything, but yeah. um, how do you uh, measure success uh, from a dual meet? I think it's really looking at the individual and looking at what they've done. And as long as we're making progress every single day, then the result will be there. That's kind of what we preach every day, even at the, the championship meet. Um, if you can be better than yourself and you can do that every single day over the course of one year or four years, you're going to end up very good. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, in respect to that, mate, I do want to touch on the fact that you're working for one of the greatest coaches in history. And it's kind of like a, an ideal situation for any young coach. And, um, and, and it's a, a very cool situation to be in. So from your perspective, what's it like to work for Bob Bowman? Um, it's great. I mean, he's definitely lives up to the the hype of what what really you expect in terms of a leader and somebody who's able to get a whole team of 60 plus people on just the same at least goal and working towards the same thing and being able to buy into that for i mean 365 days a year really um it's it's very impressive to see those leadership skills i mean all of the things outside of just the physical training aspects of it he does a a really good job of that and it's been i mean it's been an incredible learning opportunity for myself to see someone like him do that and um i mean have the success that we've had so far here at asu is is, is really exciting and honestly just really enjoyable to be able to be a part of it i always like talking about specifics so try and give me some specific times over the course of the past couple of years where you have thought to yourself and maybe not vocalized it to anybody else or maybe you have but in terms of like wow i'm so glad to be sitting in this room i'm so happy to be learning from this man um give me some specific instances of things that you've taken away from from bob that you feel like you you're, you're then able to then carry that into your own future career as a, as a developed coach yeah um i mean i'd say some one specific example in terms of training is kind of seeing he's pretty good at incorporating volume in a way that isn't mm. overly fatiguing to where mm. people can do i mean pretty high volume weeks and not really get overly fatigued and that's something mm. that especially coming from my background of like the full opposite side of almost i mean a few years ago like hating a high volume week mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. um seeing just kind of how he does that and how he actually presents it and things like that is is very good and then um kind of on the more i guess softer side of coaching there's some 
ways that I've learned from him as to how you present a workout where sometimes it's, it's something that is really hard. And if you don't really make a big deal about it as a coach and just kind of, okay, this is the practice. Don't worry about it. Um, they accept that a lot more or the vice versa where you can mm -hmm. really build something up and put the, the emphasis in the right spots and really caring about what really does matter. And there are some things that aren't as important. And as the coach, you just kind of let them be individuals. And that's, um, I mean, really the, the key to success in, in my opinion. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, I, that's good stuff because you're right. The, the nuances of, of coaching, um, yeah. you know, when, when's it, when is it important to make a big deal? When's it important not to make a big deal? Those subtle things yeah. are, are huge. And so a lot of times someone will take a workout and say, just show me the workout you did. Well, it's not, it's not the workout itself. It's also the delivery of the oh, yeah. workout and how that was implemented. And then that over a consistent period of time in terms of the delivery makes a huge impact as well. Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's I mean a hundred percent, and that's what what he does a, a really good job, of, and that's something I hadn't really ever been exposed to until um, I started working with him. Um, one last question on him, and I'll move on to you. Do, does he have some non-negotiables that you've had to um, embrace and, and figure out? Uh, you know, in, in maybe maybe for the swimmers, if you could just share some of those, or maybe even for, for coaches, like, you know, um, it, it's non-negotiable to be late to practice kind of thing, or is there, is there anything like that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, for those, that's, that's 100%. I mean, we, everybody's there really like 10, 15 minutes early. Um, and when coaches walk out on deck, everybody's already standing there and we're ready to go exactly when um, it starts. And that's, I mean, really the, I'd say the only one in terms of like specific coaching of like what I have to do as a coach in terms of like a type of practice or anything like that. There's surprisingly very little of that. It's really as long as we're working towards success and giving the best effort that we can. I haven't had any um, constraints on that for myself as a coach, which was in all honesty surprising because I thought it would be I mean, when I started here, I thought it was going to be kind of like, this is the Bob Bowman way of doing things. And I'll just kind of stand back and help out where is needed. But mm -hmm. um, he's really allowed me to do a lot of just kind of however, however I want to do it, which was honestly not what I expected <laughs> at all when I started. Talk to me about that then. In terms of being an assistant coach, um, what can we learn from you uh, in, in terms of being successful within a program where you, where you have, you know, a giant figure like Bob who's running the program? Where, where does your role fit in? How do, you, how do you feel about it? So, you know, where can you be the best you can be, but also at the same time being the best assistant you can be? You know, the, the fine yeah. balance? But yeah. Talk to me there. No, I, I think that's that's a great question. And I think, honestly, being a good assistant is – is, is somewhat hard because everybody kind of has their own ego of wanting to be mm -hmm. the person in charge and doing all of these um, good things. And right. I mean, definitely what your role as an assistant, every assistant's role is to help the, the team as much as they can. And I mean, my role here is kind of, I have my group of swimmers that I get almost whatever freedom that I want to do in terms of there, but I guess supporting is also, um, I mean, there's some teams that kind of have um, a little bit of rivalry between the groups of like, this group's the best, this one's, mm -hmm. we're, we're better than these guys. And it's like a competition there. And I think just mm -hmm. trying to get people to understand that they're individuals and we're, we as a coaching staff are trying to put them in situations where we think they're going to be the most successful. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we have a lot of crossover in terms of people who swim the same events training in two completely different groups doing I mean very different ends of the spectrum um so getting people to accept that it's not like we're working harder than them or vice versa I mean it's normally the vice, <laughs> vice versa of of that but um to just kind of accept and embrace that and understand that um 
we want to be the best swimmers that we can be. And we want everyone else on the team to be the best we can be and supporting them and just being there more for like emotional support is what um, everybody on the team's role should be. Um, despite if we swam 30 minutes and they swam 9k hard, <laughs> we got to kind of be okay with, with, being different from other people and accept that we're we're doing the best. And if, if we're supporting them, then that's all we can ask from them as well. All right. You, you clearly sound like you're talking from the sprint side of things. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I get it, you know. Destro Swim Towers. Gain strength in the water with a tower of power. Save $150 per double swim tower by using code BRETT, B-R-E-T-T, -T, at checkout, destromachines.com. Uh, here's what I did want to say in terms of that. Okay, so your role, it sounds like, at ASU is the sprint coach or on the sprint side of things. Would that be yeah. correct? Yeah. Okay. How was that How was that role presented to you with you and Bob, the discussion of, of you know, how did you figure out what exactly you were going to do how you were going to do it like what kind of discussion did bob give you in terms of the role what he expected from the role and what you're actually implementing and then also a, a follow-up question would be probably how was that role then um expressed to the to the athletes how did they understand the definition yeah. of your role so i guess in terms of the discussions of what specifically it was going to look like was in all honesty relatively short i mean it was like um, I mean, I remember on the interview being like, you want me to coach the sprinters, right? And that was, and he said, yes. And that's pretty much <laughs> the extent <laughs> of it. Um, and then kind of when we started, it was just, um, I mean, we started the first couple weeks of the season, everybody together. And then we made um, just training groups where it was like, you're coaching this group of people that was all sprinters. Um, and it was try and make them faster. And now it's kind of definitely stayed in that, but kind of evolved to where there are a handful of people who, I guess before the first year, it was really people who were 50, 100 people who maybe dabbled in a 200 if we absolutely needed them to. Um, but now there's there's actually some some pretty good 200 guys in my group who just physiologically or psychologically, whatever it is, need that little bit less volume and um, just a little bit different stimulus. Um, and it's something that's kind of always, always changing to where I think both um, Bob and myself understand it. There's sometimes when people need to go in a different group for a few weeks, months at a time to just develop differently and then move back in or stay over there or really do what's best for them and just try and, um, figure out what that is for each person and trying to put the ego aside and just, um, I mean, if, yeah, everybody wants their group to be the fastest, <laughs> all the best kids on the team, but sometimes it's a better skill set to have um, a different type of person. And sometimes the best kid in your group might do better in a different group. So you kind of have to really just think critically and understand that it's not about you as the coach it's about how you make the kids on the team better and the skills that you have to do that right right well i want to i want to dig into sprinting a little bit and the way that i look at sprinting and the way i feel about myself and you know people can disagree with this or, or what but the way i look at it is kind of like um cooking right we all we all know how to cook we can we can do something um, and then as you go up in kind of the rankings of, of cooking into that kind of that chef level you know, you have people who work in restaurants who who are pretty damn good at what they do. And then within that group, there's another group of people who are kind of like these mega chefs who just who just get it. They understand. They could take any food. They walk into a grocery store, put some food together, and and just produce an incredible meal. And that's kind of the way I look at sprinting. And and I feel like I'm kind of that elite level of sprint coach. And when I I don't know you, but when I read your stuff on Twitter and I see the things that you're putting out and the explanations that you that you write and um, and then I see the results you're getting, I know for a fact he, he's an elite sprint coach. Like that guy gets it, man. 
You know what I mean? Like it just clicks to me. You understand it. There's a language that you and I speak that is just a little bit different to everybody else. I just think you're elite, man. So um, you're doing some fantastic work. I wanted to say that. Yeah, that means the world. I really appreciate that. So let's talk about that then. So what is um, sprint? How do, how do we break it down for people that really want to understand sprinting? What are some of the things that you've learned over time? What are the, some of the philosophies that you adhere to? I mean, how do you become a great sprint coach? And how do you then implement that on, on a weekly basis kind of thing? Yeah. Well, I think the most most important thing to understand is that sprinting really is a skill just like anything else. And it's something that can very much be learned even at the elite level. I think we're fortunate to be in, in a sport that's honestly, I think somewhat in its, in its infancy and development in terms of our understanding of how to efficiently move through the water. And the way that we can improve people is by increasing that efficiency and, um, it's, it's a balance of, I guess, teaching and letting the athletes learn. And kind of the best way of doing that is creating situations to where the athletes are forced to learn and just kind of letting them do that and then cycling through that. And the coach's job is really to watch that, understand if it's looking, if it's doing the things that you want to happen in that kind of new thing that you've presented, then they're, they're probably learning and just cycling through that and getting the feedback from the athletes, not only from what you see, but kind of what they see and how they feel. And then just cycling through that over and over again. And eventually, as long as you're, I think, listening to that and constantly updating kind of how, how they're moving and how you want them to move and letting them just learn that skill deeper and deeper, then they're, they're going to be getting faster and faster. Yeah. It seems like you spend a lot of time looking for the skill too. Like you put stuff out on um, Twitter and I'm like, man, he's got an incredible eye because you just pick things and you, and you, I don't know. I don't know how you cut the videos either. I want, I want to know how yeah. you do that. How do you get the videos and put them on Twitter? That's a skill too, but yeah. you put them up and you just like pinpoint the skill. I'm like, yes, exactly. Yeah that's the that's the thing right yeah yeah that's exactly it and i think it's um what i think is the coolest part of swimming is how complex it is like there's so many moving pieces and each one is kind of separate but it's your ability to do them all at the same time that defines a successful sprinter so like you can do so much of overloading like one part of the movement i mean we do a lot of um stuff with like constraints around their legs so if it's a band if it's a buoy at their ankles if it's a buoy and a band if it's um i mean fins is another example just a lot of different movements there and you can kind of use those um pieces of equipment to overload that part of the movement and then they'll figure out what what their arms actually do and how that affects their legs and then remove that add the kick in and hopefully they kind of notice that or um, I mean some of the put stuff I've put on Twitter and things like that are working different um, body lines and it's like that contrast of from one movement right into another that makes them actually realize what what they're trying to do and what the one what the equipment is doing to their their body line or their arms or whatever it is that we're working on and um, I mean noticing that that change is what um what we're really doing it's almost like i mean the analogy is it's like when if you're, if you're on an airplane and you're flying 500 miles or an hour or whatever it is you you feel like you're sitting still because you're it's constant there's no change to that but the whole time you're accelerating or decelerating you're feeling it quite a bit and i think that's the same thing with movement where it's the changes from what we're doing i mean so many people who are elite swimmers can swim fast freestyle without even thinking about it at all. And mm. you kind of have to put something there to make them think about it. And specifically the part of the stroke in which they're making a mistake or what can be corrected and really make them think about it exactly there. And then just kind of go back and forth until they figure it out themselves. I mean, my goal is to, is to do that and not say anything and then have them say like basically what I'm, 
thinking and what it's supposed mm. to feel like. Um, and that's really what I think good coaching is. I think a lot of us think it's too much of like, okay, this is the way that this person swam and we're all, everybody on our team is going to swim like that. When mm. um, the reality is that person, if it's, um, I mean, Cesar Cielo, Eamon Sullivan, all of these people probably didn't figure out how to swim that way specifically by somebody saying, you got to swim like this. They kind of figured it out themselves and the coaches were smart enough to realize that it's like, Oh, wow, this is, this is really good. Let's keep moving down that road. And then sometimes when it's not going good, just guide them back there. But it's that allowing the athlete to express themselves in the optimal way um, with the coach kind of guiding that. And then when they do something really good, remembering what caused that and then kind of just keeping it going in that direction. I really like that answer. It's a, it's a good one. I was just sitting there listening intently and kind of going back to some of those um, situations where I've done exactly that, you know, and I think you're right. That is good coaching is just putting them under some type of stress where they're having to think and figure things out for themselves and then come back and give you feedback. And yeah, that's totally true. And, and the fact of talking about there's no one size fits all type of scenario. Yeah. You know, it's not, there's not one way to swim freestyle or breaststroke or fly or back. There are, there are things that you can do well. And, and like you said, if, if things aren't going well in a particular way, you can, you can come back and try it a, a slightly different way. I remember for instance, I was trying to get a kid to swim straight arm for the, you know, for a, a, a few months and it just yeah. wasn't working for this poor kid. It just, it, it, it was it was horrible it just didn't seem like it fit and yet the guy next to him clicked straight away and it was and he was getting it and then i was getting frustrated with this kid who just couldn't get it so then we ended up going back to swimming kind of more of a, like an open bent arm type scenario and and he just took off again you know and i was yeah. like okay well so, sometimes you, you're trying to force you know uh, uh something in a square peg into a round hole type scenario you know yeah, it's just exactly. not working yeah event heat lane name of swimmer times and places it's called swim nerd live and it allows the data and times from your actual scoreboard to be broadcast and viewed in real time on any smart tv phone or other device there are so many things you can do with this software a very simple and easy to use necessity for any team or facility that is live streaming their meets results one click on any device and they're watching your swim meet live in real time Go to swimpractice.com to learn more. What about in terms of writing practices? How did you figure that out? Um, so, I mean, that's something that's, I think, also a lot of experimentation. And I've kind of always um, started from what specifically we're doing in, in the race and just really trying to work on that. <laughs> so it's a fairly simple um way of doing that i mean basically i think of it as a pyramid and we all kind of think of that um regularly in terms of traditional swimming thing is like the base is the bottom of the pyramid and we go up and the peak is the top of the pyramid that's that's really how i think about it and the top is the competitive event the things that we're racing in and then you get less and less specific as you go and instead of thinking of starting from the base and growing all the way up, I kind of think of you're doing both at the same time. You're trying to increase the base in terms of just your general skills while increasing the peak of that competitive event at the same time. So that's something I think you have to be at pretty high form 52 weeks a year to really get better, especially at sprinting. Let me um, see this. Is this, uh, is this the one you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Yeah, you sent um, that to me. And I think if people want to check this out, it's on your Twitter. So, and again, yeah. you have one of the best Twitters, uh, swimming Twitters in, in the world. You put amazing stuff up. But in terms of what we're talking about right now, this graph here, you can find yeah. that on Herbie's Twitter and download it, which I did. I just pulled it off there. And um, yeah, good stuff. So, I like that. Yeah, I'll kind of walk through that specifically because honestly, that helps me organize things in terms of training all the time. Mm -hmm. So okay. yep. for those listening, it's a pyramid that's basically divided into, into four parts where the top is the competitive exercise or the competitive event. And that's 
straightforward. If that's swimming, that's a hundred freestyle. And then below that is a specific developmental exercise. And that means it's either, well, it's replicating the movement of the competitive event, as well as training the physiological systems of the event. So basically in swimming, that's you're swimming the stroke and speed and working the physiological system. So that's something that's very specific and not much individuality can be done in that just because it has to be very like the event. Then below that, we have specific preparatory exercises and that's basically training the movement or the physiological system separately. So not at the same time. That's the, the bulk of what we really do in training. And then below that is general preparatory exercises. And that's just, just general movements that we do like warm up, warm down, weightlifting, anything totally not similar to swimming that's important, but um, not having super high degree of, of transfer is um is what we're doing and basically it's the amount of relevancy to the competitive event is is what's going to have the most um specific transfer for for the race and um i think the thing that a lot of people have been led astray on and i think a big part of that is um like usrpt to where it's saying mm -hmm. that we basically only want to do the specific developmental exercises. And that's important, but um, it's not the whole puzzle. And in terms of overloading and teaching, it's kind of inversely correlated to where the less specific something is, the more overload that can have on the competitive event um, and vice versa. If you're doing something that's really similar to 100 freestyle, then there's gonna be very little overload and very little learning that can occur because it's just kind of the same thing. Um, and I think you kind of have to go cyclically through that to where you're working all ends of the spectrum. In my opinion, I think it needs to be in a part of every single week, because if you go too long without doing any of that specific developmental stuff, you're not, you're not figuring out, you're not like putting the pieces together. Mm -hmm. So I think you've got to do all of it all the time. So those specific developmental exercises is stuff that we track um i mean almost every week for for the whole year and it's it's that's i think probably the coolest thing that that i found in my coaching and i think if you track it you can like it predicts what they're going to go to within a couple tenths um give me some examples of what you're tracking the whole year so i mean kind of the core is 50s on two minutes and variations of that. And this is specifically for the 100. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll start with just testing like four 50s on two minutes. And then every week kind of try and make a change to that, to where they're swimming the speed of that either longer or trying to go faster or a different way of doing it. But it, it changes every single week. Um, and that's I mean, been, been pretty cool where it kind of is the – just normal periodization model where the volume of that goes up, it gets harder and harder. And then as we go down and we get closer to the meet, it gets easier and easier and they're trying to go faster and faster. But basically every week we're trying to take a step forward in either the amount that you're doing with that or the speed in which you're, you're swimming it. Um, uh, so let me, let me get this straight. Then maybe you'd start with four fifties on two minutes and then, as the weeks progress, you might go six, eight, ten. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's that's actually kind of how I used to do it super linear, just like that, and keep it pretty simple there. But what I found is it's not really necessary to do that. We used to go all the way up to like 1650s on two minutes, trying to hold the same speed that we did hold for four all the way to 16. Mm. And I mean, I've honestly found that that's kind of unnecessary. And um, by that pyramids model, it kind of it's no longer the energy, like the 1650s on two minutes, that's a 32 minute set. That's not that similar to a 100 yard freestyle, especially for mm -hmm. guys with 41 seconds. Like it's just overkill. Yep. So instead of doing that, we'll kind of see how they do and then change it in a different way. So it'll be, I mean, we've done it to where it's like one on two minutes, two on one minutes. We've done some where 
and it's it's based on the individual. So if they're struggling to, if their top speed isn't there, but they're closing really well, then we'll almost always go on the side of speed. So we might go 450s on four minutes um, or start really- When do you make an adjustment like that? Are you making that adjustment on the spot or, or days before or when? No, it's, it's days before. It's kind of the feedback from how the set goes the previous week. Gotcha. And if we go, let's say we do 850s on two minutes and they're lights out the whole way, then it's like, okay, their, their back half's probably going to be pretty good. So we can start working the front half now. Mm -hmm. um, and we kind of add constraints based on the individual. I mean, like we did one set the other day with um, a couple of our 100 fly guys where it was 12 on two minutes, one with fins where they had to kick past 15 underwater each direction one without fins, one easy. So they're going into it, the, that fast 50 with pretty tired legs, like the way it is for um, for 100 fly. Um, we did a similar one with um, actually last week where it was just three basically broken 100s. was 225s on 30, a 50 fast on about eight minutes, the whole round. Um, but it had to be no breath the first 225. So they're they're actually having to figure out how to take that breath efficiently and go as fast as they can on the 50 while their lungs are, are pretty dead. Um, just because, I mean, part of that was because um, Ryan held at the World Championships, um, his first 25, his length was, was pretty amazing. I mean, he kicks out to 15 and he was holding a ton of water. And he only took seven strokes the first 25 and mm. uh, seven or eight strokes the first 25 short course meters. So he only got one breath in. Mm. So it's like, oh man, we didn't really prepare him for that by not having enough um, breath control. And for, I mean, just he kind of became more efficient to where he'd normally take nine strokes and he could take two breaths comfortably mm. but he was out so fast that it was like you gotta think on the fly and it, I, mm. I think it was the right call to not try and sneak another breath in there just because his stroke looked so good um so it's kind of preparing them for what might happen in the race mm. um and i guess to to clarify on that it's also if the speed isn't there the speed is always number one so if they can only do 350s at their 100 speed, then we, we kind of have to make sure the speed is there and start making it to where they can do the volume. And then once the volume's there, and for me, it's like six to eight at the most 50s you'll really need in a, in a practice to be similar to a 100. Um, and that's like in really one set. Mm -hmm. uh, more than like that, that. Is overkill. I like that a lot. I, I know the answer to this question for me personally. I think you're going to pretty much say the same thing, but why not? Why do 50s? Why not do 100s? I think you're just going too slow. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. exactly. Yeah, I mean, you can't like you can and it's 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 just training something different, like because you're not going to be able to go. I mean, we're asking these guys to try and figure out how to swim 41 seconds mm -hmm. in 100 yards. They're at the best going to go 44 if we go more than one of them in a practice. So yep. Yep. especially in a college season where you're already racing fairly often, you don't really need to do more, more one hundreds. And it's not to say we don't ever do a hundred um, continuously in practice, but when right. we do that, it normally has a different emphasis where it's kind of strong technique, like hitting the details for four laps in a row. But um I just don't think you. I just don't think you need to. I think the hundreds are great for two hundreds and above, but mm -hmm. for one hundred, yep. it's, it's way too much. Yeah, man, I'm totally on the same page with you on that one. I think you need to be at the speed that you want to be racing at, or close as close as possible. You're right, and yeah. and when you stretch it out to the full length of the race, you just can't get anywhere near that pace and speed, and so you're, you're yeah. dealing with something completely different. Um, talk to me about uh speed and power how do you develop the two and, and what's the difference between the two as far as you're concerned because we use we use those words a lot in swimming speed and power and for me they're they're different meanings different things what, is, what do they mean to you so i think they're they're they are pretty similar um i mean with 
power, it's really just swimming under resistance. And what we're trying to do there is just add load to the body. So there's a little bit more muscle fibers being called upon while doing the movement. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we do, I really like the, the power racks that are, people don't know what that is. They only go about 12 meters or so, and we can actually mm -hmm. time how long it takes to go there. So we're actually making sure power is, is being increased. I mean, power is power equals work over time. Mm -hmm. So if you're just adding weight and going slower, you're not necessarily being more powerful. You're just changing the load. Um, so we do a lot of that of timing how fast they go on, on the rack. So with, um, I mean, 10 plates, I don't even know how much the plates are, <laughs> how much they weigh, but we just kind of quantify it by number of plates and we time that and um, make sure that they're um, going faster when we do that there. And um, yeah, that's power. I think it's very similar to speed. And I think contrasting the two is also pretty good to where you're going. I mean, we do stuff, actually did it just a couple hours ago this morning where they sprint with the rack, float back, take it off, go right into a sprint. So they kind of actually feel where that strength is supposed to be felt in the stroke. Right. And that would be the definition for me in terms of the slight differences that the power is the resistance, the speed is the application of the yeah. swim with the power type thing. So yeah, you're right. So you do a short power jab of, you know, like you said, six, seven seconds, boom. And then you take it all off and you extend that to 10, 12 seconds. You know, you might do a 25 from a push with no yeah. resistance and that's just clean speed. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. I mean, we honestly on a lot of the power days don't go above um, like six, eight seconds total. Mm -hmm. um, and I think even that is, is is pretty important in terms of what the nervous system is able to do. Um, cause if you go too long, you're, you're working speed endurance. And that's what, um, I think a lot of people do where they kind of make that mistake where even if it's a lot of 25s, um, I mean, going back to what we were saying, why not do hundreds in, um, for 100 training? I think you can, you can't do that many 25s to, <laughs> to really train for a 50 either. Um, because if you do too many, then you're just, you're, you're going too slow there and you're not actually working max speed. Um. I mean, Charlie Francis, who's a pretty well-known track coach, who coached Ben Johnson, who was um, Olympic champion. He's, um, mm -hmm. I mean, asterisk because he had some <laughs> steroid problems. But um, he would go max speed. And on their max speed days, if if they would go a PR in whatever effort they had, if they had 630s, and the first one was the best they'd ever done, then you'd say go home because that was, that was the goal of practice, to be max speed. And if you're not going max speed, you're, you're training speed endurance. So we kind of do a similar thing to where when we do 25s max speed on like two or three minutes, um, if they go slower than about 0.2 off whatever their fastest one of the, of the session was, we, we stop there because then it's, we're training speed endurance and that's not, I mean, we'll do that later in the week, but that session, if you do one or two really good ones, that's better than doing one or two good ones plus four or five mediocre ones. Yeah. I love that, man. I'm, I'm a big uh, proponent of, of this as well. Um, looking to host your first swim meet or replacing an old timing system, run a swim meet with ease from your laptop using superior swim timing. You can use superior swim timing with your existing equipment, or they can provide you with a complete timing solution, including deck harnesses, buttons and starter sst is fully compatible with high tech and team unify as well as colorado dactronics and amiga touchpads go to superiorswimtiming.com to learn more and be sure to tell them i sent you sounds like you and me are, are very very similar and it's um it's it's refreshing to to hear some someone who's who gets it so um in terms of uh threshold and vo2 max these types of things for sprinting and and you know let's just talk specifically about 100 swimmers where does that fit in for you we do a little bit of not really threshold work but we we are doing some little bit longer work um 
But I would say there's actually a really cool um, research article by uh, Bundle and Wayneand, who are pretty two well-established um, track and field researchers, that it's it's titled "Does Metabolic Power Matter?" And essentially, it's a collection of all of the studies looking at metabolic power for races under 90 seconds, and it's 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 pretty likely that it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, so you don't really need to spend that much time working, like improving the anaerobic threshold for sprinters. Um, it's more about the nervous system and the nervous system's ability to fire fast. Mm. That's what we were talking about before with why we don't do hundreds, why we keep it a little bit shorter, because that's, that's the, that's the limiting factor. If that's not there, it doesn't matter what you're anaerobic threshold is you're just not going to be going fast enough for 41 second race even a 200 yard free is i mean the good guys are 132 131 mm -hmm. um you're you're really limited by your max speed so we got to make sure that's there um and we do some some longer like 200 pace work where i mean the set might be most we've gone this year is like a couple like 2400 yard sets where they're going fast easy and just kind of staying moving instead of resting entirely um but we don't do very much traditional like 12 200s um on a tight interval where they're they're getting faster and faster right. um i do think it's interesting because if you're swimming a long course 200 you you probably need <laughs> you probably need to do that um but for for the yards guys and for the real sprint people that's that's what's necessary. Um, and yeah, there's, there's actually a pretty, pretty cool, you'd be interested. There's this guy, Tony Haller. He has a track program called feed the cats mm -hmm. and it's totally, I mean, the sprint, they don't do anything more than six seconds and they have some of the best 400 runners in the country. Um, and that's a 44, 45 second race. And they're literally never working above six seconds. He said they do six practices that are glycolytic a year. Wow. So everything else is six seconds or less. And it's just training the central nervous system to fire. Um, I mean, I wouldn't recommend that <laughs> extreme. Yeah, I mean, that, that's extreme <laughs> for me too. You know, yeah. I, I love sprinting, but yeah. uh, I don't know if I'm ready to take it that far. Yeah, that, that's a little, I mean, running when you're actually like bouncing off the ground, that's a lot mm. different than swimming when you're in water and it's a lot less shock to your, your muscles. But um, I mean, that's, that's kind of one super extreme side of what um, what can be done. And with with sprinting, especially yards, to where it's so much of just a complicated skill where you dive in, you have to hold this line, kick underwater, do a breakout. It's like a, I mean, dance routine almost, the amount of complexity that's in it. And if you're not doing that and executing it very well, it doesn't matter how good shape you're in. Right. Right. I agree. I agree. To me, a, a big part of sprinting and sprinting well and being able to back up races at, at an event uh, like a dual meet or, or an NCAs or a the conference title where you guys are at, where you got to sprint, 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 and then be consistent and then be able to rest enough and come back the next day and feel exactly like you did the day before or yeah. even better. So uh, a, a big part of that is the legs to me. I mean, it's obviously the oh, yeah. biggest muscle group. It's It's the engine for me. So how do you build the engine of the legs to be able to sustain and be at its best in conditions like that? Oh yeah. That's what we always say. Legs feed the wolf from, yeah. uh, um, that's that miracle movie, but that's something that that's, that's very important. I mean, we kick at least a little bit, really every single practice. Um, I personally don't do as much of the kind of traditional, like big kick days. Like I know Frank mm -hmm. Bush at U of A would do like literally two days a week. That was all kick. Yep. Um, we do a decent amount of kicking, not quite to that extreme, but we're just kind of, I mean, kicking all the time. And that's something I feel like every season I do a little bit more kicking. Um, cause if for that exact reason, every single meet we're at, they're like, my legs, <laughs> my legs mm -hmm. are the thing that's getting tired. Mm -hmm. So you've got to, you've got to do that all the time. And you have to be able to kick fast for a long time. I mean, especially with, um, I mean, a lot of these guys who who I'm coaching with their best event is the 100 free and they have the 200 free the day before and they normally have mm -hmm. three 200s right. the day before. You've got to be in pretty good shape to 
to be able to do that. And I mean, kicking is a huge part of that. And we kick with a board, without a board, in body line, underwater, a different variation of that, literally every single practice. Yeah. And what I would tell my guys too is always have your legs turned on. Like unless I tell you just to flop and relax, whenever you're doing something aerobically, have those legs just running at the back. Just oh, yeah. they can just be they can be steady. It doesn't have to be a, a massive effort. But if the legs are always just running, they just yeah. learn to run all the time. And when you're doing volumes of work over a period of a week, you know, you come in and you're you're swimming for an hour and a half, two hours, let's say every practice, and you're doing that, you know, seven, eight times a week. If you're just running your legs the whole time, if you stack that up over the season, you're gonna have endurance in your legs. You oh, know, yeah. it's kind of that built-in endurance where if you just do it you don't have to do the extra type stuff because you're always doing it. And then on top of that, you're doing your speed and your power and your underwater work and all that sort of stuff. So it's kind of like built in. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And I think it's um, kind of a similar concept to what we were saying before to where kind of the aerobic longer stuff for sprinters, Mm -hmm. if it's too long, they're just going to, I mean, shut those legs off and Mm -hmm. and just try and survive. So it kind of has to be long enough to where it's, it's kind of hard to the stimulus is more keeping the technique and keeping their legs going, not just Mm -hmm. complete the set. Um, But yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, that's what we do the exact same thing. You don't want to ever, I mean, it's a six beat kick 100% of the practice. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Big believer in that. And a lot of the, you know, and this isn't to, to knock high school coaches or anything like that, but a lot of high school kids, I had to teach them that. I had, they had to learn that. Oh, yeah. you know, it was, that was just a skill that was part of the process of like, okay, we're going to turn our legs on all the time. Yeah. You yeah. don't get a chance. You don't, you're not turning them off anymore. Yeah, so. that, that's like, I mean, we'd still do that. Like some of the kids, once they're committed and signed and things like that, it's like, look, just trust me, just kick more. I don't know yeah. what, how much you're doing, but you need to do it more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to kind of eliminate in my process and, and my performance of my athletes was this belief of missing taper. You know, I wanted to kind of just eradicate that. I hated it. You know, I don't want to go a whole season and then come down to the, this final piece of like, oh, I missed my taper. Well, what about all the work you just did? You oh, know, yeah. so I, I found that what I would do is um, a gradual uh, progression down, you know, very gradual. So let's say, for instance, they're, you know, five, six weeks out, they're, they're doing 4K a practice. And this is very general. But yeah. if they're doing 4K, then they, we go to 38, and then we go to 36, and then, you know, down to 32. It's, it's a very gradual progression down instead of kind of like bulk of work, do nothing and relax and oh, kind yeah. of go into this hibernation phase and, you know, this paralytic phase where, you know, you can't move, you can't walk upstairs, you can't, you know, yeah. like all these, all these crazy yeah. things. Uh, is that kind of the way you approach it as well? Yeah, pretty much exactly. I mean, we don't, I don't really like to, like, I don't think you, you hit or miss a taper. It's just kind of your preparation for a season. Right. Um, and we're, I mean, we're nine weeks out of NCAAs, and I'd say we kind of already started that to where it's just making sure we're getting faster every single week. And if we can do that for the next nine weeks, we'll, we'll be pretty good. Um, and it's not like I don't ever want to get to the point to where the last three weeks we're just freaking out and saying like, okay, we're going to take today off, do meet warm up tomorrow, and then do 125 off the block the next day because we're just dead. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather err on the side of too little now and then have to work a little bit the week or two before the meet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I tell, I do the same thing with, um, with our kids. It's not, you're never really hitting a taper. It's just the, the preparation that we have. That's like what we talked about before where we have this meet, um, this, these two meets Friday and Saturday of this week. That's part of the taper is being able to swim fast here and that gives me feedback as to what we have to do going forward. Um, so, I mean, what I've read is physiologically, you hold a peak for a couple of weeks. So when coaches are trying to nail this on the head of like, okay, Thursday morning is when we're mm. all going to hit it perfectly. That's, mm. that's totally wrong. I mean, I'd rather be swimming lights out a week before and then just keep it, keep it going than right, right. try and nail it on the head. Because if you try and nail it on the head, you're just getting too fancy and making it harder than what it needs to be 
Yeah, exactly. I would do that too. I would try, I would try and get it to the point where a week out where we're hot in, in, in training. And then for me, it's just kind of like adding salt and pepper, you know, you just, you just yeah. continually just seasoning it. you know, it's just like, all right, we're not going to eliminate things. We're going to continue to do things. Oh, yeah. you, you might do less of them with, with more rest or whatever it is, you know, it's that manipulation of um, volume and intensity type stuff, but things don't disappear because you're in taper. It's like, you oh, know, yeah there was this old school theory of like, I can't swim fast in taper. I can't work hard in taper. Like those things don't disappear. You might be doing a little bit less of those things or yeah. you, you might be getting more rest during that period, but it's not an elimination of something. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's like going back to that pyramid. We're trying to do all four types of training every week, the whole year, even the week of the meet where we're doing right. some, some general work, we're doing some specific preparatory work. Yes. Um, the real developmental work is very light where it might be one or two fifties at 100 pace instead of eight fifties on four minutes as fast as you can go. Um, but it's th those pieces of that are there every single week of the year. So it's never really a drastically different program, whether it's, I mean, Christmas training or the week before NCAAs, it's, it's the same concept. Yeah, I agree, man. Well, uh, listen, this has certainly been um, a little bit of a clinic in sprinting. And, and I get asked this all the time. Why don't you do a sprint talk? This is it, man. This is the one. And, and I love that pyramid too. I would, I would adhere to that. I'm, I'd, I'd send that out to people and say, this is exactly what you need to do. And, and what you just touched on there in terms of doing all four parts of it throughout the whole year absolutely right i mean i couldn't you couldn't be more spot on man um yeah. really good stuff so uh yeah like i said you you got one of the best twitters out there people need to follow you check it out um great stuff you're doing uh, congratulations on everything good luck with the season thanks for sharing these ideas with us I, I appreciate your time today herbie yeah thank you thanks for having me on it was fun absolutely man we'll do it again after you guys uh you're gonna win ncaa's one day come on I mean, hope, hopefully we keep <laughs> just trying to get better and better every day. If we do that, I think we can do something special, but once, stuff, maybe man. once Eddie retired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what everybody's hoping for one day. <laughs> well, good luck with everything, man. Congratulations. All right. Yeah. Thank you. See you, bud. I'd like to introduce our newest sponsor, Swim Angelfish. Swim Angelfish is an online certification program that strengthens your teaching curriculum to serve swimmers of all abilities. Swim Angelfish will prepare you and your instructors with the skills to teach swimmers with autism, physical disabilities, anxiety, sensory and motor conditions, and more. Learn to teach skills faster and with more comfort with Swim Angelfish. Apply for an only alpha pool product scholarship and receive up to 50% off your certification. Go to swimangelfish.com today to apply.